Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding expectations, simplifying lives, and establishing legacies that last for generations. Leverage their exclusive network of experts to help achieve your personal and professional financial goals. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect to a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. Welcome to the Conkey Ride Home for Friday, December 17th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how a librarian discovered a secret library within her library plus some tips for unplugging more deeply when you're on vacation, and the group of actual birds knocking Adele and Ed Sheeran off the top of the Australian music charts. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Speakeasies are great. You know, even though these days they don't serve their original purpose of needing to hide from prohibition agents, it's still cool to go to an establishment hidden behind another one or obscured in some way from the public eye. Even if you can learn how to get in on the bar's website or Instagram page, you know, you still feel a little bit like you're in the know when you go there. Earlier this week, Jason shared on Kotki.org that Burger Joint, an excellent burger place hidden behind a curtain in a fancy midtown hotel, had recently reopened. I haven't been back to any of my favorite hidden bars or restaurants in Manhattan since before the pandemic. You know, a lot of them had to shut down completely since outdoor dining isn't exactly an option for a hidden operation unless they had backyards. But something I read this week made me wonder, what would the speakeasy equivalent of a library be? One librarian in Victoria, British Columbia, recently found out. Devin Tatton was just making her normal rounds, reshelving and picking out books that may be out of date, when she grabbed a 1984 copy of Handpicked Tours of North America, a motorist's guide to scenic routes and fascinating places in Canada and the USA. And when she did, a handful of paper booklets fell out. Now, at first, Tatton didn't think too much of it. She told Capital Daily that people use all kinds of strange things as bookmarks, so it's fairly routine to find receipts, scratch tickets, even one time a slice of cheese within the pages of returned books. Side note, I think I've done a segment on this before, but if you're into that kind of thing, there is an Instagram account called In Used Books, in which teacher Emma Smirker posts the letters, photos, post-it notes, and other curiosities that she finds within the pages of used books. Link in the show notes. It's a great account to follow. But it turned out that Tatton hadn't just found someone's forgotten impromptu bookmark. She'd stumbled on a whole secret library within her library. The hardcover handpicked Tours of North America book had actually had a rectangular hole carved into it, and within that hole were tons of zines, or self-published handmade booklets popular especially in queer, punk, and fan circles. The zines were made by different authors on many different topics and printed on lots of differently colored paper of all different sizes. In addition to the zines, there was a welcome note pasted on the inside cover of the fake book that read, Congratulations! You just found the Central Branch Book and Zine Trading Library. Be sure to leave something if you take something so the library stays well stocked. Tatton showed it to her colleagues, none of whom had been aware of it, but all agreed it should be put back on the shelf where it had come from so its regular and new patrons could continue to trade titles. 
Librarians do tend to be fans of zines. The Washington, D.C. public library system has a whole zine archive that I was lucky enough to visit a few years back, and another D.C. library branch recently raised over $100,000 by selling t-shirts that went mildly viral with the phrase, what's more punk than the public library? Trust me, a lot of librarians are way cooler than the stereotype gives them credit for. Even though the sentiment was different, Leslie Nope wasn't far off on Parks and Rec when she called librarians punk-ass book jockeys. But anyways, in addition to being thrilled, the librarians at the Greater Victoria Public Library Central Branch were all curious how the zine library got there. A quick email sent to the address on the faux book yielded no response. So journalist Tori Marlin of Capital Daily went on the hunt. After hitting dead ends with a few of the authors from the zines that were in the collection, including one author from the other side of the country who had never heard of the secret zine library and had no clue that her zine was in it, but thought that it was incredibly cool, Marlin stumbled on someone who happened to know the person who set it all up. A person named Simon Frankson. Here's a quick description from Marlin, quote, Frankson is someone who's always involved in some kind of project or another, ones that don't involve monetary gain or hype. A writer, podcaster, and activist in their mid-30s, Frankson helps organize Victoria's anarchist book fair and recently has been on the front lines of the Fairy Creek protests as a sort of participating historian and artist. They're now working on an album of karaoke tracks consisting of James Bond theme songs sung by a persona they use for their poetry. End quote. Sounds like the kind of person I'd be friends with. Anyways, Frankson set up the secret library back in 2015 with the hopes of encouraging more of a zine community in Victoria and connecting the existing zine makers. Quoting again, They chose the public library as a host as it was controlled for temperature and seemed like a good place to hide a book. As Tatton suspected, Frankson did a fair bit of recon to pull off the reverse heist. They scoped out the stacks in search of the least populated area, hoping to place the fake book containing the zine library among books that were infrequently checked out, and therefore infrequently reshelved by librarians who might notice it. Frankson remembers settling on the Canadian geography section, although they actually placed it in a different section. Frankson scoured Value Village for just the right book to house the zine library. It had to be big enough to hold a collection of zines, and had to have something to do with Canadian geography. It also had to appear to be a dull read. You know, you'd look at the cover and you'd be like, that is not the book I'm looking for, Frankson said. And Frankson thought hand-picked tours fit the bill, and created a call number for it that wasn't in use but that fell numerically between ones that were. With an exacto knife, Frankson painstakingly carved a rectangle into the pages of the book, leaving an inch or so of margin. They sealed the altered pages with glue and tape, essentially creating a box in which to store zines, with the cover of hand-picked tours serving as its lid. End quote. For the most part, they didn't explicitly tell people about it. They dropped hints into conversation, sometimes handed out slips of paper with the book's call number, and changed the cover photo for a Facebook group they ran for Little Free Libraries into an image that held a couple of hints. In the zine library's peak from 2015 to 2017, they estimate about 50 people knew about it. And when they used to check up on it about once a year, the collection was always completely different than before, a sign that people were definitely using it. But about five years ago, they'd stopped checking in on it. They'd moved on to other projects. But apparently, the zine library kept chugging, even without Frankson involved. And now, it has official approval from the library, meaning there's no threat of it ever being removed or destroyed. Like the fake speakeasies in cities these days, it might be a little less cool now that it's all above board, but it's still fun to get to experience something that's hidden from everyday view and from most people's knowledge. 
And back when Frankson first started the secret zine library within the library, they had a kernel of an idea of encouraging the creation of secret zine libraries at other branches around the world. There's even a site where you could log yours if you happen to have started one. I mean, who knows? Maybe other secret libraries within libraries do exist already, and I'm just not lucky enough to know about them yet. So if you are in the know, be sure to log your library with the Decentralized Zine Library Project. Link in the show notes. As many of us might be getting at least a few days off in the coming weeks, I thought it might be worth sharing a piece from Condé Nast Traveler with some tips on going device-free when you're away from work. Whether you're cautiously traveling to see loved ones or doing a staycation, putting your devices away for a bit can help you relax more deeply and impactfully during your time off. The first tip that Traveler has is to prepare, mentally and logistically. Remind yourself that you are committing to using your device less, so plan activities and downtime that don't require devices, and let your travel companions and coworkers or housemates know what you're doing ahead of time so expectations are set. And make sure you think through what tasks you will actually need your devices for, or how you could organize your activities so that you don't need them. Because, you know, it's one thing to want to break from notifications and unending messages and doom scrolling, but phones are still useful for maps, weather, checking a restaurant's hours, playing music, etc. If you so desire, how much of that can you do before you set your device aside? You know, can you print out a map, call ahead, or maybe just use your phone's app limits to lock yourself out of any app that isn't purely necessary? And be aware that you might want to practice taking time away from your phone or devices before your trip or vacation so it's easier when you're on it. If you're someone, like many of us, who checks your phone all the time, probably more than you realize, you can try an exercise that honestly might be helpful even if you don't have some kind of deviceless vacation planned. Larry D. Rosen, professor emeritus at California State University Dominguez Hills, calls it taking a tech break. Traveler describes it, quote, Give yourself timed one-minute breaks from a task every 15 minutes. And during this minute-long break, you can check your phone notifications, scroll your timeline, whatever you want to do. When the minute is over, you put the phone down and continue doing what you were before. Now, once you've got that down, you'll slowly increase the time between breaks to 30 or even 60 minutes. This shows your brain that you do not have to be constantly connected, says Rosen. End quote. And speaking of helping our brains disconnect, another tip is to set your phone to grayscale. Quoting again, Instagram influencers with stunning, vibrant feeds is not a coincidence. Our brains are drawn to bold colors, music, and thus the content creators who present all of the above as their lifestyle. That's why switching your phone to grayscale mode, pretend you're back in your Nokia brick phone days, could make it easier to disconnect. Switching your phone from color to grayscale mode makes every screen experience slightly less compelling, says Adam Elter, New York University marketing professor and author of Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked, end quote. And if checking your phone is a bit of a stress or anxiety habit, work on figuring out what your triggers are so you can prepare safeguards. You know, would some social media notifications or texts or a Slack message from a coworker ignoring the clear boundaries and out-of-office responders you set ahead of time send you spiraling? Double-check you've got your notifications turned off and do not disturb on ahead of time. But if it happens, take a deep breath and respond by saying that you'll reply properly when you're back online. You know, Obviously, there are going to be some emergencies in which that isn't possible, but make sure you can tell the difference. 
And this is one of my favorite takeaways from this article, quote, Licensed therapist Jocelyn Spence notes that when we take time to set boundaries and unplug for our own health and wellness, it gives others permission to do the same, creating a ripple effect, end quote. It's like in freelancer world, we often talk about how if you feel uncomfortable smacks of imposter syndrome when you try asking for what you're worth on your own behalf, then at least think about how undercutting yourself affects others. If you take a job for less than you're worth, then that client can go to another person who asks for an appropriate amount and say, well, this other person with your same experience level did it for us for this much. It can be tough to be the one setting boundaries and sticking to them, but especially if you're in any sort of leadership position at work, it can help encourage other people to do the same. And on that note, Traveler's final tip is to be clear about your device-free intentions with the people around you. Kind of like being the only one not drinking, sometimes being the only person not on a device can be tough. You don't need to force others to do the same or guilt them if they don't, but letting them know what you're doing might actually encourage them to want to indulge in a few device-free activities too, like maybe having everyone turn off their phones for dinner. Reducing how often we use our phones can help us be more present in the moment, more intentional, and more attentive to those around us. It can also help our focus, reduce feelings of anxiety, and help us get better sleep, all stuff we're usually looking to do on vacations or staycations. Number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in the U.S. today is Adele's Easy On Me off her new album 30, followed by a smattering of Christmas songs like Mariah Carey's All I Want For Christmas and Brenda Lee's Rockin' Around The Christmas Tree. And over in the U.K., it's a similar story. Adele's Easy On Me drops down to number two on their singles chart, beat out by Ed Sheeran and Elton John's new holiday song Merry Christmas, which is great, by the way. And in Australia, they've got Adele and the Ed Sheeran-Elton John track, but holding steady in the top five albums on their aria music chart is songs of disappearance a new album consisting entirely of bird songs now as anyone who's watched love actually or spent any time engaging with british media and influencers this time of year know the quest to get the christmas number one song is a frequent and often fruitless quest but a social media campaign to get this album of bird songs from 53 of Australia's most threatened species into the Aria music charts has actually worked. And now the album is the first of its kind to ever chart in the top five. Quoting ABC Australia, Anthony Albrecht, a PhD student at Charles Darwin University and co-founder of the Bowerbird Collective, is part of a group of academics, musicians, and conservationists behind the project. He said, In some ways, it's not surprising, because I believe Australians generally are so much more attuned now to the environmental crisis that we're all facing, and that the unique and incredible species that also call Australia home are facing. The title track, arranged by Simone Slattery, includes all 53 of the endangered species featured in the album. The tracks were recorded by David Stewart, a wildlife sound recordist, over his decades-long career. End quote. And the BBC notes that some of the sounds recorded by Stewart took hours of waiting in the bush just to record one quick note. Here's a listen to a sample from the album. And if you want to get a copy of the album yourself, you will be supporting the work of BirdLife Australia's conservation projects to which the proceeds go. 
Stephen Garnett, a professor of conservation at Charles Darwin University who also worked on the album, told ABC Australia, quote, Birds are the original artists. They've been singing for millions of years, and now they're going, and there's a whole lot that we're not going to have with us if we don't do something about it, end quote. All right, well, that's it from me for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday. Have a great weekend.